Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. It is my pleasure to welcome Bob Levy, constitutional attorney. You know as well as I do that once government takes power, getting them to release that power um, is one of the most difficult tasks that anyone could possibly imagine. So the question would be, um, in a pandemic, if this, in this, learning the rules of this pandemic, we obviously have to be very, very careful in the future because there are a lot of other things that the government could say is dangerous. For instance, more people die of many, many different causes than from the coronavirus. Uh, if you look at the world stats, uh, in a, there are some websites where you can get all this information. Many, many more people die from cancer, heart disease, smoking-related, alcoholism, automobile deaths, uh, the regular flu. Uh, there are so many more reasons for people to die, and, of course, we all die eventually anyway. So, But what what is to prevent the government from never, ever relinquishing these powers uh, and and just continuing to get more and more and more power with every possible excuse. That's what I fear happening. Uh, it seems to me that that's a real possibility and a real fear that we are in danger of losing our individual freedom by these practices. It's a, it's a fear that uh, I share, and um, the only remedy is a, uh, a vigilant uh, citizenry that makes sure that people are put in power in government that uh, have a proper respect for individual liberty and that understand that the aggrandizement of government power is uh, counterproductive and, in fact, infringes on uh, individual liberty. And I'm sorry to say that I think that the uh, citizenry is is uh, being ill-served by the educational system. And and uh, <clears throat> as a result, we have this, this sense among uh, particularly younger voters uh, that uh, more and more government power is a solution to the problem. And in fact, uh, more and more government power is is, uh, is uh, the cause of the problem. And you have folks like Bernie Sanders, for example, who makes these outrageous uh, statements like uh, uh, that the drug companies are run by a bunch of crooks and that they, one quote was, they are ripping us off every single day and that the virus uh, exposes the cruelty and the unjustness of the economy, uh, allowing big money interests and multimillionaires to profiteer off uh, working families. Uh, this is absolute, utter rubbish. Of course, his cure is, uh, among other things, centralized, universal 
health care, and we see how well that worked out. Single-payer systems in Italy and Spain uh, and France. So giving the government all this power um, is counterproductive. And in fact, if we have a lesson learned from this pandemic, it is that government uh, exacerbated the problem stemming originally from CDC's uh, failure to uh, to implement uh, adequate uh, testing. And that now the private sector, not the public sector, the private sector is riding to the rescue. So we have, uh, you know, the, the crooks that Bernie Sanders refers to at, at the Big Pharma. They're the ones that are developing the, um, both the treatment for COVID-19 and ultimately a vaccine for COVID-19, notwithstanding the delays they have to face in getting FDA approval. We have tech companies like Google and uh, retailers like Walmart and CVS uh, that are providing uh, websites and drive-through testings and private labs that uh, are helping to resolve this uh, problem. Uh, we have the, these multi-billion companies like uh, Amazon and, and Comcast and, uh, and Verizon uh, that are keeping Americans uh, uh, busy and online and, and productively engaged, notwithstanding these rules that have attempted to shut down uh, uh, the economy. So anybody who thinks that, the, that socialism is the answer or even that greater government power is the answer, I think is smoking well, you know, when, smoking an illegal substance. <laughs> well, when you come to this kind of an argument, the word socialism has kind of lost its meaning for young people. And when you get into that argument of the free market or capitalism versus socialism, they kind of glaze over. Uh, they don't understand the implications. People like you and I lived through the Cold War. We saw what communism and socialism does to a nation what happened in, in Russia, what happened in China, where millions of people were slaughtered, uh, where the, the lives were ruined and, and, and the economies ruined uh, from that kind of an economic system. I think the only way to approach people, especially younger people in today's age, is to discuss who, who, own, who controls you, who owns your body, who owns your life, who makes decisions for you? Do you want to make decisions for yourself or do you want a government panel to decide what's going to happen to you and what your life is going to be like? That really is the, is the argument, collectivism versus individualism. Uh, and that's the argument we have to make and we have to desperately, we have to make it as rapidly as possible because we're in danger of losing it all. And all we have to do is compare uh, if we want if we want to contrast uh, the uh, economic effect of having uh, economic freedom uh, versus state control, all we have to do is look at East versus West Germany or North versus South Korea, you know, or communist China before it was somewhat liberalized versus Taiwan or versus Hong Kong, where these cultural differences are more or less neutralized. And what is left is the distinction between uh, state control and, and, uh, and private control. And at the same time, if you take a look at indicators of growth and innovation, uh, like number of patents and number of PhDs and new business starts, it's the United States that's been the economic engine uh, for the rest of the world. And uh, what is often lost uh, to our young folks is that capitalism should be judged on moral grounds as well as empirical grounds. 
So it's the only economic arrangement that's consistent with personal liberty. And even if I were convinced that socialism produced a greater average wealth, which of course it does not, uh, I wouldn't want to live uh, under a socialist system because socialism works only when its opponents are forced to cooperate. Uh, collectivism means uh, coercion, and uh, liberty means that you have choice. And our preoccupation with equality is harmful to the very people that we're trying to help. We shouldn't want equal outcomes. It's inequality and aspirations for uh, for greater success. That's the incentive that triggers uh, productiveness and innovation and entrepreneurship. So we should be cheering for inequality, as long as it derives <clears throat> from private achievement and not from government favoritism. So we, you know, we really do need to distinguish between two strikingly different groups of people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates who produce wealth and they supply goods and services that satisfy market needs, and then the crony capitalists who uh, run to uh, Washington, D.C., seeking bounty uh, from government bureaucrats even during times like the present when the rest of us are suffering. Uh, and these bureaucrats end up dispensing their uh, their benefits to the uh, politically uh, influential. So that's the kind of distinction between liberty and, and collectivism that we really need to emphasize to our young folks. And I'm s- sorry to say, I don't think we've done a very good job of it. And, and that's the risk that you point out, that some of these... Um, aggrandizements of of government power that uh, arguably are justified during a time of emergency end up uh, becoming permanent, and that uh, stifles uh, entrepreneurship and innovation and ultimately uh, leads to statism, which is um, counterproductive and and, uh, forces the rest of us uh, to... uh, not only to suffer empirically, but suffer as a, as a moral matter in terms of sacrificing our liberty. You know, this whole pandemic and everything that we've been talking about leads to a very important question, and that is the value of life, the value of a life. Um, I think uh, one of the uh, examples people use is war, and I think that uh, what we've seen is the the wedding cake has really turned upside down in this pandemic situation. In war, for instance, World War II, uh, what happened is we sacrificed a few to save millions. And I think what's happened in this pandemic, it's turned out that we have sacrificed far more than we have saved. That's a very difficult choice, and it's a difficult thing for many of us to swallow when you add to that the obvious uh, usurpation of power by governors, uh, and you look ahead and you say, this can't end well for our country. What do you say to that? Well, I share your concern, and I do think that uh, we have erred um, on the side of uh, hypercaution, and uh, the real risk is, first, that we've been wrong in doing so, and we won't know that for a while, uh, but I suspect that we have been wrong. But down the road, the risk, of course, is that we allow these programs that have been put in place to address this emergency, we allow these programs to become part of our uh, ordinary fabric. That will be the really destructive 
uh, process if it's allowed to occur. So we have to be, I think, eternally vigilant uh, to make sure that, uh, first, that we minimize the extent of government power, limit it to the extent that it's necessary to address this emergency, but second, and most important, that we make darn sure that it doesn't continue, uh, that we establish uh, strict limits that this power will be eliminated as soon as uh, the conditions no longer warrant it. So it's a two, two-part problem. The first part is that we've allowed the powers to accumulate beyond what's necessary to address the pandemic. And there, I think it's because we've erred on the size, side of, uh, of, of uh, health as opposed to the destructive effects of shutting down an economy. And secondly, that we run the risk that some of these powers uh, become permanent, semi-permanent, and that uh, leads to destruction uh, down the line that we cannot tolerate if we're to retain a position as the freest society on the face of the earth. Well, Bob Levy, we've discussed this, uh, some really important issues, and there's one additional thing that I would like to ask you because it relates to this. Obviously, the Supreme Court considers important cases all the time. Some of them have direct import uh, on an immediate, some on a long-term basis. But nevertheless, are there cases currently on the Supreme Court docket that you think are extremely important for us to be aware of? Well, there are lots of them. Uh, Let me mention one that I think, uh, you know, we've been talking about the educational system. So there is one uh, case that uh, is important with respect to uh, education. It's a school choice case. Um, and it deals with what's called the Blaine Amendment. The Blaine Amendment was something that was adopted in the early 1900s. It was really an anti-Catholic amendment. It, it specified that there'd be no direct or indirect aid to religious schools. So there's a case now called Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue that's uh, been argued and is pending and we will get a decision between now and the end of June. And it's whether or not it violates the religion clause or the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, to invalidate a generally available student aid program, a school choice program, simply because that program affords students the choice of attending uh, religious schools. Um, We have high hopes uh, that the court is going to come down on the side of uh, the students in this case, and that will open up competition for the public school system in the form of private school choice competitions that's essential to getting the public school system to perform better and to give students an alternative if the public school system uh, does not uh, perform better. So the issues in the case are the establishment clause, whether or not government by providing aid to religious schools is effectively establishing religion, and the equal protection clause, whether or not government can single out religious schools as not being allowed to participate in a generally available school choice program. And I uh, I think the court's going to hold correctly uh, that um, if there's to be a government program that aids schools, it has to be extended to all schools, not just secular schools, but also uh, religious schools as well, as long as those religious schools don't use the money to foster uh, religious activities but use the money for an educational uh, purpose. I think the pandemic, uh, in one thing, one positive thing, is that there are a lot of people really considering homeschooling their children. Uh, 
we, of course, in Cherokee County here in, in, in North Georgia, we have a lot of children who are homeschooled, uh, a lot of parents who understand how important it is to make sure that your kids get that kind of an education where you control what is taught, where the truth is taught to children. It's not whitewashed by a political agenda of some kind. So I agree with you. I hope that that case progresses to the, through the Supreme Court in a positive way because I think the competition for a public schools is really essential if we're going to increase the overall quality of education. Uh, it's also important, of course, that the education be uh, true, be an education in truth with an, with an attention to the history, the lessons of history, and how important that is. I mentioned one other case, uh, Dr. Dan. Um, we were talking about uh, vesting too much power in the federal government. One way in which that's been done is by Congress abdicating its authority to uh, create legislation and delegating that authority to these independent uh, administrative agencies, which are not subject to any uh, political recourse because they're run not by elected politicians, but by unelected uh, bureaucrats. Um, There's a big case pending before the court called SELA Law versus Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, This was Elizabeth Warren's uh, pet project. And the issue is whether the vesting of substantial authority in the uh, CFPB, which is an independent agency, uh, and it's only led by one director, not by a commission, but one director, whether this violates the separation of powers because it's Congress that's supposed to be their legislature, uh, not these independent agencies. The director of that agency, the CFPB, can be fired by the president only for cause. And the agency receives funding without Congress, directly from the Federal Reserve System. So we're hoping that the Supreme Court uh, will rule that this is a violation of separation of powers and and put a a temporary halt and hopefully even a longer-term halt to this uh, uh, delegation, impermissible delegation, of legislative powers to uh, executive branch agencies. Uh, And the extent to which these agencies now control Our day-to-day activities is just extraordinary. The regulations that these agencies passed are codified in the Code of Federal Regulation, the CFR. And it's about six times now as large as the U.S. Code, which codifies everything that Congress has passed. So we're really at the the, the whim of these executive agencies and administrative agencies, even though it's Congress that's supposed to be our legislative body. Hopefully, the Supreme Court will step in and and um, and bind uh, these agencies and and for, frankly bind Congress uh, with the chains of the Constitution. That's the function that the court ought to be performing, and we hope it does. Well, that certainly is one of our problems: is that the Congress is not doing its job. It's not doing its job in so many ways, but. One of those ways is it writes these 2,000-page bills. There's absolutely nothing in them except saying this agency or that agency will set the rules. And as a result, we have no control over who is actually setting the rules, and we have no way of petitioning them to redress our grievances, which is also one of our rights under uh, under the First Amendment. So I agree with you. That that sounds to me like one of the most critical cases. If we could get Congress to be responsible for the legislation it act, that it actually passes, maybe we'd have some proper redress. We'd be able to grab them and say, I'm not sending you back there if you continue to vote for 
uh, bills of this nature. Well, Bob Levy, this has been an incredible discussion of some really awfully important issues. Uh, freedom, freedom, individual freedom to me uh, is what this is all about. It's what makes us so different in America makes us so different from so many other countries is that at least we have a, a constitution and bill of rights that in some measure guarantees that we can be free individuals. And I want to thank you so very, very much for being a guest on Freedom Forum. My, my pleasure, Dr. Dan. Thanks for all you do that uh, promotes the cause of liberty. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The rights to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything going to be all right this morning. Peace.